Today's C.S. Lewis Daily comes from his essay on why I am not a pacifist, specifically why he is not a pacifist. Obviously, many Christians have been, um, throughout history, credited as um, being pacifists, and if that's something that you're interested in, you might want to read uh, or hear about Desmond Doss, who was an army combat medic who had a vow not to kill, even though he had joined the army. Um, very interesting story of a conscientious objector um, from Lynchburg, Virginia, who ended up being the subject of a new film called Hacksaw Ridge. Definitely worth seeing. So, but on the other side, let's look at C.S. Lewis's thoughts on why not to be a pacifist as a believer. The question is whether to serve in the wars at the command of a civil society to which we belong is a wicked action or an action morally indifferent or an action morally obligatory. In asking how to decide this question, we are raising a much more general question. How do we decide what is good or evil? The usual answer is that we decide by conscience, but probably no one thinks now of conscience as a separate faculty like one of the senses. Indeed, it cannot be so thought of. For an autonomous faculty like a sense cannot be argued with. You cannot argue a man into seeing green if he sees blue, but the conscience can be altered by argument, and if you did not think so, you would not have asked me to come and argue with you about the morality of obeying the civil law when it tells us to serve in the wars. Conscience, then, means the whole man engaged in a particular subject matter. But even in this sense, conscience still has two meanings. It can mean, A, the pressure a man feels upon his will to do what he thinks is right, B, his judgment as to the context of what right and wrong are. In a sense, A, conscience is always to be followed. It is the sovereign of the universe, which, if it had the power as it has right, would absolutely rule the world. It is not to be argued with but obeyed, and even to question is to incur guilt. But in a sense, B, it is a very different matter. People may be mistaken about wrong and right. Most people, in some degree, are mistaken. By what means are mistakes in this field to be corrected? The most useful analogy here is that of reason, by which I do not mean some separate faculty, but, once more, the whole man judging, only judging this time not about good and evil, but about truth and falsehood. Now, any concrete train of reasoning involves three elements. Firstly, there is the reception of facts to reason about. These facts are received either from our own senses or from the report of other minds. That is, either experience or authority supplies us with our material. But each man's experience is so limited that the second source is the more usual. Of every hundred facts upon which to reason, ninety-nine depend on authority. Secondly, there is the direct simple act of the mind perceiving self-evident truth, as when we see that if A and B both equal C, then they equal each other. This act I call intuition. Thirdly, there is an art or skill of arranging the facts so as to yield a series of such intuitions which linked together produce a proof of the truth or falsehood of the proposition we are considering. Thus, in a geometrical proof, each step is seen by intuition, and to fail to see is not to be a bad geometrician, but an idiot. The skill comes in arranging the material into a series of intuitable steps. Failure to do this does not mean idiocy, but only lack of ingenuity or invention. Failure to follow it need not mean idiocy, but either inattention or a defect of memory, which forbids us to hold all the intuitions together. 
Now, all correction of errors in reasoning is really correction of the first or third element. The second, the intuitional element, cannot be corrected if it is wrong nor supplied if it is lacking. You can give the man new facts. You can invent a simpler proof, that is, a simpler concatenation of intuitable truths. But when you come to an absolute inability to see any one of the self-evident steps out of which the proof is built, then you can do nothing. No doubt this absolute inability is much rarer than we suppose. Every teacher knows that people are constantly protesting what they can't see some self-evident inference, but the supposed inability is usually a refusal to see, resulting either from some passion which wants not to see the truth in question, or else from sloth which does not want to think at all. When the ability, the inability is real, argument is an, at an end. You cannot produce rational intuition by argument, because argument depends upon rational intuition. Proof rests upon the unprovable, which has to be just seen. Hence, faulty intuition is incorrigible. It does not follow that it cannot be trained by practice and inattention, and in the mortification of disturbing passions, or corrupted by the opposite habits. But it is not amenable to correction by argument. Before leaving the subject of reason, I must point out that authority not only combines with experience to produce the raw materials, the facts, but also has to be frequently used instead of reasoning itself as a method of getting conclusions. For example, few of us have followed the reasoning on which even 10% of the truths we believe are based. We accept them on authority from the experts and are wise to do so, for though we are sometimes thereby deceived, yet we should have to live like savages if we did not. Now, all three elements are found also in conscience. The facts, as before, come from experience and authority. I do not mean moral facts, but those facts about actions without holding, which we could not raise moral questions at all. For we should not even be discussing pacifism if we did not know what war and killing meant, nor chastity if we had not yet learned what schoolmasters used to call the facts of life. Secondly, there are the pure intuitions of utterly simple good and evil as such. Third, there is the process of argument by which you arrange the intuition so as to convince a man that a particular act is wrong or right. And finally, there is authority as a substitute for argument, telling a man of some wrong or right which he would not otherwise have discovered, and rightly accepted if the man has good reason to believe the authority wiser and better than himself. The main difference between reason and conscience is an alarming one. It is thus that while the unarguable intuitions on which all depend are liable to be corrupted by passion when we are considering truth and falsehood, they are much more liable, they are almost certain to be corrupted when we are considering good and evil. For then we are concerned with some action to be here and now done or left undone by ourselves, and we should not be considering that action at all, unless we had some wish either to do it or not to do it, so that in this sphere we are bribed from the very beginning. Hence, the value of authority in checking or even superseding our own activity is much greater in this sphere than in that of reason. Hence, too, human beings must be trained in obedience to the moral intuitions almost before they have them, and years before they are rational enough to discuss them, or they will be corrupted before the time for discussion arrives. These basic moral intuitions are the only element in conscience which cannot be argued about. If there can be a difference of opinion which does not reveal one of the parties as a moral idiot, then it is not an intuition. They are the ultimate preferences of the will for love rather than hatred and happiness rather than misery. There are people so corrupted as to have lost even these, just as there are people who can't see the simplest proof. But in the main, these can be said to be the voice of humanity as such. And they are unarguable. But here the trouble begins. 
People are constantly claiming this unarguable and unanswerable status for moral judgments, which are not really intuitions at all, but remote consequences or particular applications of them, eminently open to discussion since the consequences may be illogically drawn or the application falsely made. Thus you may meet a temperance fanatic who claims to have an unanswerable intuition that all strong drink is forbidden. Really, he can have nothing of the sort. The real intuition is that health and harmony are good. Then there is a generalization from facts to the effect that drunkenness produces disease and quarreling, and perhaps also if the fanatic is Christian, the voice of authority saying that the body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Then there is a conclusion that what can always be abused had better never be used at all, a conclusion eminently suited for discussion. Finally, there is the process whereby early associations, arrogance, and the like turn the remote conclusion into something which the man thinks unarguable because he does not wish to argue about it. This, then, is our first canon for moral decisions. Conscience, in the A sense, the thing that moves us to do right, has absolute authority, but conscience, in the B sense, our judgment as to what is right, is a mixture of inarguable intuitions and highly arguable processes of reasoning or of submission to authority, and nothing is retreated as intuition unless it is such that no good man has ever dreamed of doubting. The man who just feels that total abstinence from drink or marriage is obligatory is to be treated like the man who just feels sure that Henry VIII is not by Shakespeare or that vaccination does no good. For mere unargued conviction is in place only when we are dealing with the axiomatic, and these views are not axiomatic. I therefore begin by ruling out the one pacifist position which probably no one present holds, but which conceivably might be held that of the man who claims to know on the grounds of immediate intuition that all killing of human beings is in all circumstances an absolute evil. With the man who reaches the same result by reasoning or authority, I can argue. Of the man who claims not to reach it, but to start there, we can only say that he can have no such intuition as he claims. He is mistaking an opinion, or more likely a passion, for an intuition. Of course, it would be rude to say this to him. To him, we can only say that if he's not a moral idiot, and unfortunately the rest of the human race, including its best and wisest are, and that argument across such a chasm is impossible. Having ruled out this extreme case, I return to inquire how we are to decide on a question of morals. We have seen that every moral judgment involves facts, intuition, and reasoning, and that if we are wise enough to be humble, it will involve some regard for authority as well. His strength depends on the strength of these four factors. Thus, if I find that the facts on which I am working are clear and little disputed, that the basic intuition is unmistakably an intuition, and that the reasoning which connects this intuition with the particular judgment is strong, and that I am in agreement, or, at worst, not in disagreement with authority, then I can trust my moral judgment with reasonable confidence. And if, in addition, I find little reason to suppose that any passion has secretly swayed my mind, this confidence is confirmed. If, on the other hand, I find the facts doubtful, the supposed intuition by no means obvious to all good men, the reasoning weak, and the authority against me, then I ought to conclude that I am probably wrong. And if the conclusion which I have reached turns out also to flatter some strong passion of my own, then my suspicion should deepen into moral certainty. By moral certainty, I mean that degree of certainty proper to moral decisions, for mathematical certainty is not here to be looked for. I now apply these tests to the judgment. It is immoral to obey when the civil society of which I am a member commands me to serve in the wars. First, as to the facts. The main relevant fact admitted by all parties is that war is very disagreeable. The main contention argued as by pacifists would be that wars always do more harm than good. 
How is one to find out whether this is true? It belongs to a class of historical generalizations which involve a comparison between the actual consequences of some actual event and a consequence which might have followed if that event had not occurred. Wars do no good involves the proposition that if Greeks had yielded to Xerxes and the Romans to Hannibal, the course of history ever since would have perhaps better, been better, but certainly no worse than it actually has been. That a Mediterranean world in which Carthaginian power succeeded Persian would have been at least as good as happy and as fruitful for all posterity as the actual Mediterranean world in which Roman power succeeded Greek. My point is not that such an opinion seems to me overwhelmingly improbable. My point is that both opinions are merely speculative. There is no conceivable way of convincing a man of either. Indeed, it is doubtful whether the whole conception of what would have happened, that is, of unrealized possibilities, is more than an imaginative technique for giving a vivid rhetorical account of what did happen. That wars do no good is so far from being a fact that it hardly ranks as a historical opinion, nor is the matter mended by saying modern wars. How are we to decide whether the total effect would have been better or worse if Europe had submitted to Germany in 1914? It is, of course, true that wars never do half the good which the leaders of the belligerents say they are going to do. Nothing ever does half the good, or perhaps nothing ever does half the evil which is expected of it. We will read further in C.S. Lewis's argument for and against pacifism, um, hopefully tomorrow. If you are enjoying the C.S. Lewis Daily Series, um, know that it is sponsored by Prometheus Studies, Meditations on Finding God in Tarantulas, Palabolas, Thermodynamics, and Mario by Jen Finelli and available at barnesandnoble.com and wherever else books are sold online. Thank you very much for your time, and have a wonderful evening.